Who are you? What does it mean to be human? What is truth? Is your red the same as my red? Is free will truly free? What is morality? Join us as we explore these ideas and more in The Philosopher's Stone. Welcome, everybody, to our first episode of Philosopher's Stone. I am your co-host, Dustin, and with me is my brother, the other co-host, Darren. How's it going? And we'd like to welcome all of you guys to our first podcast episode. So today we will be discussing epistemology, morality, and perspective. This is going to be part one of perspective. We're going to do another episode of perspective in our, our next episode. So to get things started... We'll talk a little bit about why we decided to name our podcast Philosopher's Stone. I can go ahead and do that, and then Darren, you can add any extra comments or whatever. Yeah. So uh, we decided to call this Philosopher's Stone because historically Philosopher's Stone has been kind of more of an alchemical idea. The, The alchemists back in the day used to believe that there was a thing called a Philosopher's Stone that can turn lead into gold. However, there's some sources that say the philosopher's stone is more of an allegory to a mental transmutation. The idea behind this podcast is we want to try to basically break down ideological ideas and try to create more discourse, to create more conversations, more discussions, and sharing more versatile ideas in order to develop better better solutions to abstract problems you know, understanding topics like morality, truth, all those kind of things. And so Philosopher's Stone is just kind of more of a philosophical transmutation, I guess you could say, is we're trying to like basically extend extend the conversation. So yeah, Darren, you have any extra comments or anything? Yeah, no, I think that, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. The idea is transmutation from kind of a less pure metal to a more pure metal or something of less value to more value. And I think that conversation is powerful and that you know we're capable of gaining new insights from other people and kind of transform our own minds and learn more from conversation so kind of the point of this is just to have a conversation and see what we can't figure out yeah absolutely all right and so back to our our topic epistemology morality and perspective it's kind of the background to this topic is i'm currently in college and One of my English assignments is I had to write a research paper on either epistemology or education, somewhere along there. And then our professor gave us an extra credit opportunity to turn that research paper into another form of media. And since Darren and I have been wanting to start this podcast for a little while, we figured now would be a great opportunity to make this happen. And so, and that's (laughs) why we're here with this first episode. So we're here to kind of discuss my research paper Wherever we post this research paper, we are our correction. Wherever we post this podcast, we will have the research paper somewhere close by, so that those of you who are listening can go and read read the research paper, so you have a little bit more context to to what we're talking about. Yeah, and hopefully we'll be getting that up soon. You know, we're trying to get some things, still trying to get some things in order for this podcast, but here we are. We're recording. And, I don't know, do you want to go ahead and dive right in then? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so you wrote a paper titled Epistemology, the Acquisition and Evaluation of Knowledge. Do you want to just go ahead and give like a quick summary of what your paper is and kind of what you cover in it? Yeah, absolutely. So, Epistemology, uh, Acquisition, Evaluation of Knowledge. So, I kind of wanted to take kind of a, kind of a ground-up approach to to this research paper. So I started with really trying to understand how how does an individual acquire knowledge? Like what is that what does that look like? What does that mean? So I started with okay, well, what is known? What is it what is knowledge? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of define knowledge or the the realm of the known as remembered experience. And so the idea behind that is when you come across new information you receive that information through your basic senses, and then from there, as you interpret that information, you kind of develop a, an emotional reaction to it, and that produces 
kind of an experience. So now that I've defined known, then I had to go and define unknown. Well, unknown is the opposite of known, so it's the the domain of things not yet experienced. So then after defining known and unknown, I went a little bit further into kind of the, the dichotomy between known and unknown and kind of related it to other dichotomies such as ordering chaos, predictability, unpredictability, just to kind of make it a little bit more, I guess, easier to kind of understand how the two relate. Mm-hmm. And then from there, the question was like, okay, now where is the individual placed in all this? Where does a, you know, how's the individual kind of mediate between the, the known and the unknown? And I kind of came up with two two methods in which a person goes from from unknown to known, and I called that inquisitive exploration and forced experience. Now, inquisitive exploration is basically asking questions about things that are related to the known, and yep. that's that is kind of a caveat to inquisitive exploration is that it can only relate, it can only help a p- person explore the unknown in relation to the known. So. Yep. And it's meant to really, really encapsulate the idea of, of curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. The, the problem with that is if you just ask questions, you're just curious about things, well, you, know, you might not ever find answers. So you have to follow that curiosity up with action. So that's why inquisitive exploration is kind of the, the phrase I chose to kind of you know, signify you know, asking questions and then follow those questions up with, with actions to find yeah. those answers. You actually have to step out into that unknown to actually make that part of your known, correct? Yes, absolutely. Gotcha. And again, inquisitive exploration only occurs with the unknown as related to, to the known. Now, the other, the other way in which a person can explore the unknown is through forced experience. And forced experience is when a person is involuntarily subjected to new information. And this new information may or may not be related to the known. Right. So if you say you walk past somebody who's having a conversation and you hear some new information, well, you know, you might not have chosen to to seek out that new information. You're just involuntarily subjected subjected to it. Yeah. And I kinda use I kinda use a little funny allegory not really allegory, but a hypothetical scenario with, with Plato and a modern day iPhone and mm-hmm. saying that theoretically there's no way that that Plato could have ever really conceptualized a modern-day iPhone because that concept was so far outside of his known that he couldn't, he, he couldn't have possibly began any sort of inquisitive exploration into that concept. But if, if say, an iPhone, 2022 iPhone fell from the sky and landed next to Plato and Plato saw the iPhone, well, then now he's had an experience with that iPhone, then he could begin inquisitive exploration. But that moment that, that, that Plato has that experience, he's in that forced, forced experience with that iPhone. He's subjected to, involuntarily subjected to the concept of the iPhone. And so that was kind of the hypothetical scenario I used there. So after identifying how a person moves between known and unknown, then... I kind of moved towards the evaluation of knowledge. And in order to kind of really build up my argument for evaluation of knowledge, I kind of had to set kind of set the stage. And in doing that, I had to talk about subject subjectiveness and objectiveness, where subjectiveness is experience and objectiveness is is reality, right? Yeah. And from there, I was like, okay, well, you know, how do we evaluate knowledge? How do we know what is true and what is false? And I came to the conclusion that that truth is objective reality, and what is true and what is false is merely a comparison of a subjective experience with the objective reality. Mm-hmm. So then I argued that point, and then I kind of moved on to more to morality and how subjectivity and, and objectivity kind of relate to morality. And... I make the argument that the definitions of of what is good and what or what is right and what is wrong within the the concept of morality the definitions of what is right and what is wrong is very subjective it's, it differs from person to person however the 
the concept of morality, morality itself, the idea that there is a good and there is, or there is a right, there is a wrong, there is a good, there is an evil, seems to be a very universal concept. Yeah. Which, it's it's kind of interesting. But then, kind of towards the end of my argument, I kind of bring up the biblical story of the fall of man, and basically said that the concept of morality is something that mankind was was never we were never built to to carry the burden of of morality essentially we weren't we weren't designed with the with the capability of knowing definitively what is right and what is wrong and that's why things like philosophy and perspectives we have we struggle with that and then i kind of concluded it basically saying that my hopes for for this essay was that maybe it can provide a new perspective a new hopefully a new foundation with which to again kind of like what we're doing with this philosopher's stone really try to understand that all human experience is a subjective experience and in order to better understand the world we need to have more ideas we need to be able to expand our our view on cer- certain topics with more conversations and and things like that. So that's kind of the I don't know if I would say brief synopsis. It was a, a synopsis of uh, of my research paper. So yeah, yeah. kind of primarily what you're dealing with, and it's interesting how this transition of simply trying to understand how we take in information and the way in which you know we learn things so quickly falls into this issue of perspective and issue of morality because once you start really breaking it apart and understanding how much of everything that we understand is subjective and how quickly our senses are deceived right it's like well then how can you trust that you know what you know (laughs) if you're so easily deceived by your own you know senses but then this really kind of gets into that primary issue of perspective of we we have to have some way of interpreting our senses appropriately because if we don't then everything is kind of the same right when and we were kind of talking about this another time like when you're in a room everything in that room is kind of organized in relationship to whatever is relevant to yourself you can have a hundred books on the shelves but that's not necessarily what you're currently thinking about although you know that that information is only relevant to what you're trying to do. And so you kind of have this value and then it's kind of value that's put on the differentiation of things within your perspective. And then that kind of has to have an end point at some point, right? So it's like, I do this so that I can do that, so that I can do that, so that I can do that. And there has to kind of be an end point of like, so that like, why, why do I do all this? Right? Yeah that kind of why do I do all this is kind of that morality sense of like, what does it mean to be good? What, <laughs> what, what does it mean to, you know, what is good for me to do? This is, this is a very, very big issue. Probably one that we will be spending several episodes talking about trying to break this down. But there was one interesting bit. I think you were talking somewhere... Somewhere about whenever we take in, you know, sensory information, then we have an interpretation of it, right? Okay. Well, there was a study done with Tibetan monks. So they got a group of Tibetan monks and a group of regular people, hooked them up to an EEG, basically from there subjected each test group to increasing amount of pain until, you know, they said, hey, that really, really hurts. Stop, please. Okay. And so on the normal people, the regular subjects, they found that they had pretty little pain tolerance. Their brain wouldn't activate a ton when they were subjected to pain. But very quickly they said, hey, stop, right? Mm-hmm. But then when they went to the Tibetan monk, subjecting them to the exact same pain in theory, the Tibetan monks were able to take far higher amounts of pain before they would say stop. Hmm. And so you would think, okay, well, maybe they've trained themselves to be like pain tolerant or something. But then when they looked at the EEGs, 
their brain scans actually showed an increase in mental activity. So the regions of the brain that are responsible for processing the information from the pain receptors were actually far higher in the Tibetan monks. They were feeling the sensations far more, but they weren't necessarily associating it as that painful. Wow. And so this, I think, brings up a very interesting question in relationship to your paper. Is there a separation, or is there any way we can separate the kind of raw data that we get from our five senses and our perception of that information? That's actually kind of difficult because there is an optical illusion. I don't know if you know of the the silhouette of the ballerina where the mm-hmm. ballerina is spinning, but it's a silhouette. And so depending on how you look at it, she either spins clockwise or counterclockwise. Yeah. And so you could say that's an interpretation of the senses because if you really try hard enough, you can make the ballerina spin in the other direction. Well, yes. But the raw sensory data, that's not a ballerina spinning. That's a black silhouette changing shapes. Yeah, this is true. So, like, even the acknowledgement that that is a ballerina spinning, I would argue, is an interpretation of that sensory data. Yeah. And it's crazy because I've seen the exact optical illusion you're talking about. Even though it's a silhouette, somehow I'm capable of perceiving the entire like three-dimensional shape of that silhouette well then i guess that that really begs the question if you kind of have to expand that question to not just include the senses but really subjectivity to begin with is subjectiveness merely based on the senses or the interpretation of the senses yeah that that's entirely accurate and it things in my opinion things get very very muddy here because like especially okay you get into placebo right yeah you know with the placebo effect you are perceiving something that isn't based on your environment but solely based on your mind but that seems to be from the senses or is that simply based on your perception are your senses picking up something based on your perception like (laughs) Well, I think even the placebo effect, like, even that is, again, goes back to the power of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. You know, we are very subjective creatures by nature, mm-hmm. and it's kind of hard to imagine what an objective person would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But <laughs> it's, yes. <laughs> but... Here's here's another question. We've kind of talked about this before. Let, let's say that subjectivity is solely based on perception. You know, then the argument could be made that, okay, well, simply, you know, living life without perception would then be the ideal because then you wouldn't be subjective in some sense. But wait, wait, Say that again? Living life without perception would be the ideal because then it wouldn't be subjective. So if you only lived life based on based on the raw sensory data, which I don't know exactly what that would look like. But, and that's kind of the issue, is that if you were to try and live life without perception, you don't have a way of organizing your world. You don't have a way of, you don't have a way of turning a black silhouette into a dancing ballerina. Like, <laughs> Yeah, well, I think, well, hold on, one of our audience members She says, uh, what about both? The senses can perceive partial information and the brain can interpret any information uniquely. That That is a good point. Yeah, and I would argue that both do happen. Both are extremely important. Well, I think that's also that kind of goes into a higher uh, kind of more of a hierarchy of of sensory reception. And Darren, you and I have had have had conversations about this where, you know, you're reading a book and or you wake up, you decide you want to read a book first thing in the morning, but you haven't had your coffee yet. So maybe you make a pot of coffee, you go to sit down and read your book. Well, you might smell the coffee, but you might just be really fascinated with the book. So this, so you might smell the coffee, but mentally you kind of kind of create this 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 hierarchy of 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 sensory input. You're more you're more 
concerned with the visual aspects of of the book you're reading and not so concerned with at least in that moment not so concerned with the coffee until you can get to a stopping point and then you can go get the coffee yeah and and then at that point coffee becomes a higher priority because you're tired yeah all all of that but i guess this begs a very important question then is like and this kind of gets into the morality aspect so we can say we have our physical senses and then we have our perception of those senses and that is very very useful because it gives us a way to organize the world around us in such a way in which we can move from point a to point b move from the state that we are to kind of our goals right okay how then do we determine what our goals ought to be and how then do we determine what the right path towards those goals are and well, what th- tools might we have outside of our base perception that would allow us to do that? Well, I think a couple of things. One, I think that's starting to move from perspective into morality. Yes. And then secondly, I think in order to, to try to... Honestly, it's, I, I believe it's kind of twofold, honestly. On the one hand, and kind of going back to back to perspective and subjectivity for a second... I think I think perspective is very important. One because we are very we're very subjective creatures. Yeah. And you know, we kind of talk about subjectivity versus objectivity and and in some regard we do kind of say a lot that in order to view the world correctly, you kind of have to develop as much of an objective perspective as as possible. However, that that doesn't undermine the the importance of subjectivity either because without subjectivity the world essentially would kind of be just bland right yeah and but with subjectivity you have creativity you have art you know you have it it makes life a lot more enjoyable so yeah. and i i know we talked about this when we first started diving into subjectivity and objectivity i don't know how long ago but like objectivity allows you to kind of know truth to know what exists right Yes. Whereas subjectivity, on the other hand, allows you to experience truth, right? Yes. It's one thing to know what it means to, let's say, perform a skill like playing an instrument, right? It's one thing to be able to play, to know, like, what the chords are for a guitar, to know the harmonics. You can know all the information about it objectively. It's a whole other thing to actually experience having practiced playing guitar and being able to play that riff or play that song just absolutely beautifully and perfectly. No, hundred percent. And so it, I think that's the beautiful thing about subjectivity, is that it actually allows you to get to experience the world in a very real way. No, hundred percent. And honestly, and this is my personal humble opinion. Like I do listen to a lot of like guitar instrumentals, and you can definitely tell kind of the difference between those guitarists that are very technical, and those guitarists that have a lot more feel behind what they're playing especially with like really good guitarists again in my humble opinion it's it's pretty easy to tell but kind of going back to the to the morality aspect of it so when i when i think of morality the only thing i can really and and in my paper i kind of sort of compared it i compared it to kind of kind of physical reality yeah where you know, a person can argue as much as they want that gravity doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? But if you have an object that's more dense than air and you release it from some distance relatively close to the to the Earth's surface with no other force acting on that object, the object is still going to fall towards the Earth's center, right? It doesn't matter what your opinion about that is. It's still going to do it. But that kind of ex- expresses the law of gravity. You might not see gravity physically, but there's clearly a relationship there. Yeah. And the more you understand physical reality and how the world actually works objectively, then you can use the concept of gravity or the concept of drag, the concept of lift, to then innovate and build a structure that can take off and fly. And at that point, like even the sky's not the limit. And I'm pretty sure I use those exact words in in my paper. Uh, <laughs> so when I think of morality, I think of kind of the same concept in which, again, I it's 
it's difficult because oh okay hold on one of our audience members just commented again uh she said i would say that subjectivity allows us to interpret base sensory input which can also be called data or information and make decisions and evaluations about that information and objectivity is just looking at collecting data without attaching significance to it so what you're saying is information is information is neither true or false good or bad right or wrong <laughs> I, I, yep. Yep. <laughs> 100% <laughs> but yeah so and morality is totally subjective <laughs> yes I so personally and again in my humble subjective opinion I think what again what defines what is right and what is wrong basically kind of the what defines what is right and what is wrong is very subjective, and that's because of our subjective nature. However, I think the idea of morality is universal. The Everyone has their own definitions of what is right and what is wrong. So, but sorry, go ahead. I think the thing is, the and the thing that I personally kind of struggle with the, the concept of morality is, if morality is subjective then what what determines how a person should should act right in order to live live their best life and if if it's subjective then there's no real answer to that but i think that kind of goes back to <laughs> our audience member says and the concept of a best life is also totally subjective mm. so okay so you you go ahead so here here's my here's my thought process. Okay. So I think saying that that morality and again the concept of of the best life is is subjective kind of goes goes back to the argument that argument of the personal truth. And personally I am of the opinion that that truth itself is objective reality. And again, subjective experience or what is true and what is false is how well a subjective experience relates to the objective reality. And so and the, the thing with, with saying that the argument for personal truth means that truth is subjective. Truth is not absolute. And, saying, and that's saying that truth cannot be absolute. But if you were to say that truth is not absolute, well, then you'd be making an absolutely true statement, which then creates a paradox. Right, so then the only option left is to say that truth is absolute, and truth is is objective. So, based on that argument, I would say. So, and don't misunderstand my argument. Okay, our our audience member says, well, you could ju also say that truth is just data with no moral significance, and I would say, yes, to an to an extent. So. When I, when I, mm, okay, <laughs> so I'm trying to, I'm, so I'm not saying that if, if morality is objective, if there is an objective, what is right and what is wrong, I'm not saying that everyone should live a uniform life. If I were to make that argument, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is similar to how we have laws of gravity we have laws you know in the physical world i'm personally of the opinion that there are laws of even abstract ideas that if we use those laws correctly then they would lead us to live better lives in our own unique ways i don't know if that makes sense or not but <laughs> no i think i think that ties into kind of what i was going to say but like you look at let's say mathematics, right? Okay. You actually have very few basic rules for mathematics. And yet somehow we universally come up with these crazy systems in math that just kind of appear by following those basic rules and principles. And so I think you can say, and I'm going to define a couple of terms here, I, I think you can put morality within the relative 
definition, but not within the subjective definition. And what I mean by that is I think that subjective, as we said before, is based on perception, right? So what, and morality I'm going to define as what is good for a person to do or for a person to be. We could kind of dive into those definitions a little bit more, but what is it good for you to do and what is it good for you to be? And this actually creates a very, very, things get kind of complicated because as you go through life, as you are, and as you experience things, you become a different person. So what is good for you to be right now isn't the same for you to be tomorrow. <laughs> but I would say that morality, I, I don't know the definitions of morality exactly, but I would say that morality might be unique for each person. You know, let's go with that for half a second. But I would say that there is a way of being good that exists for each person outside of their own perception. I don't know what that definition is. I don't know I I don't know what that is for each person. I'm trying to figure that out for myself, much less understand it for each individual for 7.5 billion people on the planet or, you know, everyone throughout the entirety of history. But that's where it's relative or in other words, right? You look at the natural world is natural for certain things to be the way in which they are. Like, it, it's not natural for a monkey to run as fast as a cheetah. That doesn't make any sense. But it is natural for a monkey to be a monkey. And it is natural for a cheetah to be a cheetah. And so I would say that there is a way for people to exist that is, like, that they are naturally, you know, if you believe in a higher power designed for, if you don't believe in a higher power naturally equipped with, by nature, that following that is how they ought to be, and that is good for people, right? Yes. But I would also say that there are ways of being that are not good for people, and that hurts them oftentimes whenever they are abusing those natural systems and out of balance in their life. Yeah. Well, going back to like the monkey and the cheetah idea. You're right in saying that in that they're relative. You know, a monkey can't run as fast as a cheetah, but a cheetah also can't climb from tree to tree like a monkey can, mm -hmm. right? However, the cheetah and the monkey still have to abide by natural laws of physics, gravity, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, well, hold on. One of, our, uh, one of our audience members just uh, left a comment. She Context says is important. Yes. She also says, well, you could also say that truth is just, oh, wait, we already read that. Context is important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so again, I think, I think as abstract as morality is, potentially there are essentially laws to morality, like principles, mm -hmm. mor moral principles that can be universal, but each person can apply differently to live the best lives for themselves. Yeah. Essentially. So, you know, again, again, gravity, right? So monkeys can climb from treetop to treetop because they have very muscular up and very well-developed upper body and upper limb. You know, they have a very, very defined structure for that purpose. And a cheetah has very strong hind legs and you know, is very athletic and so it can run at, at high speeds, right? And it, but they again they're both I mean they're both vertebrates, they're both mammals, they're both there there are very, similarities to the two. Yeah. And so there there are you know, I guess you could you could say there are laws that, that again they both have to abide by. Yeah. Well it's in in my opinion, it kinda gets to the idea of like you can have an infinite number of possibilities without every single possibility being within that set. Wait, say that one more time? <laughs> so you can have a set of infinite numbers, right? Okay. But that set will not contain every single possible number. 
and so I think that the important thing here is like, you know, we can say, okay, what is moral and ethical for one person may not necessarily be the case for another person. And so I think that there's a balance. One of our commenters said, then it's not an infinite set. No, it is an infinite set. So you think of, okay, I can take the set of even numbers, let's say, right? And we can say there's an infinite number of even numbers. So 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, you know, so on and so forth. And you say, how many numbers are within this set that is all even numbers in existence? You say, well, there's an infinite number of them. But you're missing all of the odd numbers, and you're missing all the decimal points, and you're missing, you know... All the all, negative numbers. <laughs> yeah, all, all the negative numbers or the imaginary numbers, right? So those numbers aren't in that set, but there's still an infinite number of them. And so you can, I think you can say, like, not everyone has the same moral obligations based on who they are without saying, without just kind of throwing morality out the window and say, well, it's up to whatever the heck you want it to be. You know, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too in the sense of like, okay, we we may not be able to get to a universal definition of this, but that doesn't mean that there is not a way for you to be that, has, that is specific for you to be. That's not to say that you don't have obligations and you get to create your own reality. I think that to do that would be to, in some sense, reject the reality within which you live and, you know, reject the object of reality and, like... Well then, are you really being? And you know that's why flat earthers still exist. You know, I say they reject objective reality, and you know they're just living their life based on their subjective opinion. You know, as as a wise person once said, the only thing flat earthers fear is fear itself. But I and I think kind of furthering kind of this idea of morality is and kind of kind of ties into our our goal here with this philosopher's stone is you know the idea of morality is is such an abstract concept right but again like i said it seems to be very universal every one of the 7.5 however many people on planet earth seem to live by some sort of moral code some sort of idea of what is right and what is wrong and again how they define what is right and what is wrong is subjective but with a lot of other abstract problems i think especially in modern society because we're so divided politically we play all these identity politics if you're not with me you're against me it really narrows down our perception of those abstract problems and again kind of going back to the goal of this philosopher's stone podcast is when you when you shut down the other half of the conversation, and especially when that conversation involves the idea of morality, right? You're only narrowing your view of the abstract topic. Whereas yeah. if you invite more ideas and you create a, a synergistic conversation where, where you're able to separate your identity from your ideas, and you're able to have your, one, submit your ideas to be evaluated and critiqued, but then also to be able to critique and evaluate other ideas by, by learning those, those newer ideas, those newer perspectives, you kind of develop a three-dimensional picture of that abstract, abstract concept, mm -hmm. right? And by having those conversations and really evaluating them, I think you're able to kind of trim the fat in those ideas to kind of get more of a of a better and a sharper image of that abstract concept yeah and, and i think sorry go ahead well and i think the best way to to try to understand kind of more of the 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 laws of morality i guess you could say is to again invite more perspectives more ideas and then evaluate them and see which ones can actually fit together. What parts of different different ideas can kind of fit together to to develop a potentially a better solution to an abstract problem. Yeah, and that I think is the, the beauty of you know conversation. The beauty of having 
conversations, especially with people with different viewpoints, is you're able to, like you talk about, you know, creative exploration, stepping out to the unknown to learn more. You're capable of, from like an abstract and mental sense, step outside of your own ideas into unexplored territory. And yeah. so that, and I kind of have a blog post on this talking about debate and discussion of like exploring ideas and then refining them down. It kind of allows you to explore in a sense that you can't on your own new territory and new ideas and, you know, see things from different perspectives and then rigorously, again, in a way that you can't do on your own, shave those down into you under critical analysis from both sides to try and like synthesize and catalyze a potential answer to your issue. And it's, I think it's a very, very beautiful thing and like a wonderful thing being able to explore things beyond, first and foremost, beyond, you know, the mere physical. We, we were talking, we're per beings of perspective. And so you're capable of looking through new lenses through different people you're capable of looking looking outside of your own self in a sense through these kind of conversations and with that you're you're able to grow your perspective <laughs> yeah absolutely and develop a much more complex view of the world a very a much a much more complex paradigm that essentially you can kind of modify to fit, you know, different situations. Like a lot of people like to correlate the idea of a paradigm to like a roadmap or like a map of a certain location. Well, you know, we're based out here in Chicago. And so if I were to drive somewhere, having a topographical map <laughs> might not be good for me you know, if I'm trying to drive to a destination, but it will be great if I'm trying to like backpack off trail somewhere. I need to understand how, you know, different elevations and, you know, steepness of hills and mountains and stuff like that. And so having, you know, having that topographical map in your tool belt is, can, can potentially be very useful. And so kind of having, being able to view different things from multiple perspectives you know, kind of has a similar utility to have having different different maps of a location. Yeah, right. You use the 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 one that's that's best suited for the job, and you can't. But you can't have those tools if you never allow yourself and open yourself up to to new ideas. Like if you yeah. never if you never venture out into the unknown, like you said, never inquisitively explore. You know, you're the realm of your known is just going to be so small. And even then, in some instances, you could say that unknown, the unknown tries to like, I don't know. Well, the it's, unknown is ever changing and ever evolving and you don't know what's in it. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Like, never... the, the world around you doesn't slow down for you. And so like kind of remaining static and stagnant, you kind of get a sense of staleness almost in your ideas. And that's, uh, I think, sorry, go ahead. And that I think is a something that I kind of mentioned earlier, but I think a very important part of this that I can see where people, you know, even if not consciously, maybe subconsciously, are afraid of to some extent, is that any time you gain new information, any time you learn something new, I would say that you you have new information, you have new knowledge, but then to some extent, you also undergo transformation. Like, yeah. you know, say I set out to do a project, okay, I want to build a website, right? Well, I have to learn to code, I have to learn how to host it, I have to learn networking, I have to, you know, learn all these different things. By the time I come out of that experience, whether I have built a website or not, I am not the same person that I was going into that project. Yeah. And that's, in my opinion, one of the amazing things about learning new things and amazing things about stepping out into the unknown is that it like you can set out with one goal in mind, but by the time you come out, you're not going to be the same person well even then i would I would argue that 
if you do set out, if you do go, if you take a proactive approach, you're going to be doing a lot more inquisitive exploration than you will be doing force experience. And force experience is kind can kind of potentially be a very be a very scary place to be because, like you said, the unknown is ever changing. That's why it's yeah. unpredictable is chaotic, right? Yeah. Whereas if you don't get outside of your comfort zone on a regular basis, mm-hmm. you, like you said, you're going to be kind of stagnant. You're going to be well within your known so that when you are forcibly subjected to the unknown, unrelated to the known, then you're going to be out of your element. You're going to be so far out, out of your element, you're not going to know what to do and you're going to basically fall apart. Yeah. Right. You won't know the skills of inquisitive exploration to find your way back to your known. And even then, your known will be so small because you never took those steps to inquisitively explore the world around you. And so it's going to take a lot longer to come back to familiar territory. <laughs> yeah, well, I think beyond that, not knowing how to deal with new ideas is even more dangerous for you because you won't know what you need to hold on to and what you don't. And what I mean by that is, like, like have you ever played one of those survival games where they have, like, a very limited inventory? And you have to be very critical about what you keep in your inventory and what you don't? (laughs) Well, not just that, but also being able to evaluate. Like, being able to evaluate new knowledge. Yeah, yeah. and, And by evaluate, I mean, like, compared to objective reality. Like, you receive all this information that you're subjected to, you never took the time to develop, really develop your your skills in inquisitive exploration, and so yeah. any any new information you're involuntarily subjected to, you don't you can't evaluate it. And if you don't fully, if you don't potentially, if you if you don't understand objective reality, then you're not going to have anything to compare your new experiences to. Yeah. And it's, and in my opinion, I could be wrong on this. I don't necessarily have evidence for this. This is just, this is my perspective, okay? This is my subjective perspective. Of the objective reality. Of objective reality. Not that anything that I've said in this has not been that, but (laughs) this specifically goes for this. But in my opinion, I think if you're not, if you don't step out into new ideas on a regular basis, Either A, life is going to throw something at you that you're not prepared for. Eventually, like, if you don't go out to it, it will come out to you. (laughs) If you don't inquisitively explore, you will be forcibly subjected. Yes. You'll be forcibly experiencing things. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you'll be subjected to forced experience. Yes, there you are. There you go. (laughs) And I, I would say even at that point, you have the decision to either reject that or to you know step into it and embrace it and if you reject it well you don't really grow or change or anything but if you embrace it you can you then have to step out into the unknown right like it it just (laughs) in a sense it's just like this unknown thing just dropped in the middle of your known and you're like what now (laughs) and you can either step onto that thing or you can you know walk around it and be like i don't know what to do with that i don't like that (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But well, well sorry, go ahead. Well, I I would say that we're dynamic creatures in a dynamic world. And so if you're not constantly updating your map, Marcus Aurelius again, <laughs> freaking genius in my opinion, said you you have no guarantees that today's understanding is sufficient for tomorrow's problems. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> like, best, laid, best laid plans of mice and men. Yeah often go awry (laughs) and it's like okay you can stay where it's comfortable in your known right Mm -hmm. you're you're like you are king in your known right (laughs) everything is subject to you in your known yep or you can step out into the unknown and potentially maybe just maybe actually have have the experience that you need to deal with the problems that will arise in your life yeah and so i think that's that's kind of what comes down to you either yeah but okay one more thing 
and then I'll stop talking because I'm sure <laughs> I've been rambling a little bit. But no, that's all good. The the last thing I would say though is that then it gets actually when you get used to it, it gets really exciting to step into things that you don't know because you're just ravenously hungry for new information. Yep. Like in just about every aspect. Like okay, I may not like the fact that biology has a bunch of latin and greek terms that i have no idea what the meaning is i just kind of have to memorize it but i am ravenously hungry to understand how the human body works <laughs> mm -hmm. you know and, for and, sorry go ahead well i was just gonna say and then from there like you understand how it works well then you know how to take care of it and mm -hmm. you know and and that way you can live a healthier life and a, a better life yeah, and again, yeah. by abiding to the laws of <laughs> of nature. Yeah. Like, no, I I completely agree, and like that. That's the cool thing is the more information you know, typically the more tools you have at your disposal to look at a new object or a new idea. You know, for example, that infinite set of numbers without it containing every single possible number type of a deal is like, oh, the you know, if I had never come across that idea in mathematics, I would never be able to apply it to the real world. I mean, yeah. not never, but I most likely would not. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Well, I think it's about time for us to kind of wrap this up. Thank you, yep. everybody, for listening to our first podcast of the Philosopher's Stone. We hope you'll join us again next time for our next episode where we go into part two of epistemology morality and perspective thank you so again for for coming and we'll, we'll stay tuned hopefully yep. we'll get a website up at some point if so we will have a link in our discord on the website we will have a link to our discord but yeah stay tuned if you're in our discord we will have an announcement as to when our next podcast will be and hope you guys have a great day yep all right